All right, if you've got your scriptures, you can open up to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Of course, we've got Bibles for you if you need them. So if that is something that would be helpful to you, you raise your hand. Our guys will bring them to your seat. Um, came back late last night from uh, Sonora, from Men's Retreat. Things are going well up there. Be sure to be praying for your guys as they're probably on their way home right now. Um, had a really great time. I think it would be uh, funny if you know Eric Ryther, you know that uh, he loves to play games. And... Um, this is the second year in a row that Eric Ryther has won the famed horseshoe tournament at Silver Spur. So let's all, as soon as you see Eric, just be like, Eric, I heard the news. Everyone's talking about it. You won the horseshoe tournament for the second year in a row. Let's make him feel good about himself. But there's a lot of fun things to be done up there. We didn't just play games. We, uh, we had the word preached to us. We were able to sing some great praises to the Lord. So uh, if you're a man and you're seeking fellowship, then then continue to seek it out. If you didn't get a chance to go to the men's retreat this year, that's okay. Talk to me. We've got some other men's things in the works that we would love you to be a part of. We want our guys to be experiencing camaraderie around the gospel. We want our gentlemen to be helping each other be strong in faith as we tackle the difficult task of leading our families, of pointing our wives and our kids and our neighbors and our coworkers to Christ. So, um, so we just want to be praying for our guys and, and ask the Lord that He would bring them all back to us safe. Uh, so that they can enjoy, uh, well, enjoy the things that they learn and apply them to their families back here at home. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and be open to Ecclesiastes chapter 5. We're going to be finishing out a big chunk of Scripture today in chapter 5. Um, last week we spoke at the park at Mira Vista uh, on the topic of money. And on money should not be our primary love. And we're going to talk today about money some more. The Lord is going to continue to open our eyes to some of the misconceptions that people have towards money, and there are many. Money is a huge topic in the lives of many people, especially in our nation where materialism is so rampant. So today we're going to receive more instruction from the Lord God concerning the things that we may come to own. We're going to be reading verses 13 through verse 20 of chapter 5 in Ecclesiastes today. Let me begin in reading the word. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days... He eats in darkness and much, much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun, the few days of life that God has given to him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life, because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. Two pictures of attitudes that we might have towards our wealth that Solomon gives us through here in the last portion of Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Let's take a moment and ask that the Lord would help us to receive these truths with humble hearts and know how we might apply them in such a way that we would guard ourselves against the same pitfalls that so many fall into. Let's, let's bow our heads together in prayer. Lord, this world that we live in is a perilous place. It's full of the effects of our sin, God. It is this way because we have made it this way. So ask, we ask humbly, Lord, as we come before you today, that you would, you would guard us from the consequences of our own decisions to rebel against you. Every human being is born with a rebellious heart, with a hardness towards you. And the effects of that hardness reaches far and wide through all that you have created. But the wisdom of your word can work alongside faith to create a difference in man. We praise you, God, that we might be able to come near to you today, that you might open our eyes to the wonderful things that we were blind to before. And we ask that you would ready us to receive these things and to apply them to our lives in a way that glorifies you, Lord God. We know that, that you are worth far more glory than we can give. But every time a man or woman puts their faith and trust in you, every time they confess you as Lord and Savior, 
and then live in a, in a way that, that matches your scripture, Lord God. You are truly lifted up through that obedience. And so we ask, Lord God, that you give us the strength to, to step away from some of the ways of life that we have lived before that do not, do not give you glory, that do not honor your sovereignty over us. God, help us to be a people that proclaim the goodness of your truth, not just by worth, but not by words only, but by deeds as well. We pray that you'd strengthen us to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. We see a very uh, emphatic phrase mentioned here in the verses that we just read. Solomon draws our attention to a condition which he refers to as a grievous evil. Now in the Hebrew, this phrase would be pronounced ra'ach dolah. And it literally means a sickening wickedness. It is an evil that has a grievous or severe effect on the people who get tangled up in it. And so Solomon here is giving us a clear warning about a sinful way of life that afflicts those who are infected by it. Anything the word describes to us as a grievous evil is worth avoiding. And yet we see this tragic situation is all too common in the world that we call our home. And so Solomon will illustrate its dangers in hopes of sparing us the heartaches of repeating this terrible mistake. The evil that's warned about here is the tragic losses that one inevitably will experience when their wealth becomes their assurance and their hope. Last week in the park, in verses 10 through 12, we talked about he who loves money, about the love of money, drawing people away from the affection they should have only for the Lord God. Today in verses 13 through 20, we're going to talk about he who trusts his money and how that man will experience a similar fate to the man we talked about last week. So I provided an outline for you so you can follow along and, and see the structure to what we're going to learn this morning. We see that it is a grievous evil to be deceived by the false allure of the idol of wealth and the securities that it, it tempts us with. Then Solomon gives us an example, a man's life who, who tragically trusted in his wealth and then found himself devastated by the loss of that security. In the midst of this example, Solomon's going to share with us a principle from his scripture that tells us that life extends beyond our material existence and reminds us that we cannot just be fixed on the things in the here and the now. We cannot be focused solely on the material world that we live in. We must think of ourselves beyond the scope of life on earth. Once Solomon exposes the tragedy of this misplaced faith, in verses 18 through 20, he describes a contrasting attitude that is good and fitting. We are to enjoy life for what it is, regardless of the station that God has chosen to give to us. So there's a grievous evil on display here, but there's also a good and fitting response to the blessings of the world that we live in. We're going to begin by examining the example of this man who keeps riches to himself, to his own hurt. Most people would think that keeping wealth to oneself is beneficial. When, when you come across a great deal of money, you'd think, well, the best thing I can do is keep this for myself, make wise use of it, save it for a rainy day, uh, for uh, unforeseen circumstances. And there is some truth to having a savings account. Today's message is not to try to convince you that you should spend every dime that you get as soon as you receive it. That's a, an error of a whole other magnitude. But we have to see in the example of this man who Solomon describes to us, a man who has thought wrongly about the wealth that he has accumulated. Through great effort, he has secured for himself a future that is in line with his desires, or so he thinks. He has worked hard. He's accumulated. He has been shrewd, and he has made some sacrifices, I'm sure, to gain this wealth. He thought that he was heaping up riches to his benefit and to the benefit of others around him whom he loves. But his perceived security was far more fragile than he had realized. The portfolio of riches that the man was counting on, we read, is suddenly lost to some kind of bad venture. Now Solomon doesn't go into the details of how the money was lost. <clears throat> because ultimately I don't think it really matters how it was lost. What Solomon wants us to realize here that it was lost definitely and quickly. Though this man had put great faith in this money, he expected it to carry him on for years and years. In just a moment, it was swept away by circumstances. Our wealth can be here today and gone tomorrow. And so the emphasis on this passage is on how quickly material possessions can prove themselves to be fleeting and unstable. It doesn't take much to lose much. We've seen in the past how 
A sudden fluctuation in the market, just a little change in the economic landscape can cause people who thought they had great assets to suddenly realize that they don't have enough to take care of themselves. In 2008, when some of the variable rate mortgages began to, to catch up with those borrowers who borrowed beyond their means, and they, they failed to be able to make their payments, a slew of foreclosed houses came on the market. And then other people who had homes that they thought were great assets for them, that they had equity in. Suddenly these houses that they had purchased for $500,000 were worth less than half of that. You can imagine the, the terror that caused for people whose security was in their bottom line, in their bank statements. An act of God can often come unforeseen and destroy what people have worked so hard to accumulate for themselves. We've, we've seen this example in Hurricane Dorian in the Bahamas, where these islands, which are beautiful and picturesque, these islands which are worth so very much because of their location, their beauty, have been purchased by people with great wealth as their vacation homes, their retirement places, <clears throat> worth millions of dollars one day and the next day, absolutely devastated by torrential downpours and by huge winds that just swept houses off of their foundations. We saw the same thing in the Paradise Fires, didn't we, last year? Individuals who were, some of them living very simply, but thought that they had enough for the rest of their retirement. And, and one little spark can create a huge difference in the future. People were devastated by this, and thousands were displaced. Sometimes it's war. We don't see this so much in our nation because we, 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 we tend to think of ourselves as being fairly secure where we're at. But in other areas of the world, one day things can be going great, and then your nation begins to become embattled with another nation. And suddenly you're in full, full out affair where you're fighting against another people, another society. The resources that you use to build your business up now are needed for building tanks and for building missiles. And they have to be redirected. The food becomes scarce as the soldiers on the front line need to be fed. War can put in peril so many things that we often think of as secure. <clears throat> it could be something as simple as a sudden illness. Our illness that comes upon us when we think we're healthy, when we think we're well, and, and then before you know it, we can't go to work anymore. We can't make the money that we thought we were able to count on. Or the money that we did accumulate now gets to be funneled into this huge treatment for our medical condition where, where our sickness must be dealt with and it, and it costs money to heal. So there's so many different examples of ways that our riches, our wealth, however great or small they might be, can be taken away in a moment's notice. Look again at the principle that Solomon uses to anchor our understanding of this man's plight. Verse 15, As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? This is a principle that we see vividly displayed in Job's story, though the result in Job's case are drastically different, aren't they? Job, just as a refresher, was a man who had much. He loved the Lord, and God had blessed him abundantly. But in just a moment, in one day's span, messenger after messenger came to Job to relay to him terrible news. All that he owned, mostly, most of it was tied up in livestock and servants, all of it was lost in a day's span. Twice raiding bandits came from other nations and, and stole his goods and put to the sword his servants. Once a supernatural disaster, fire from heaven came and, and destroyed his assets. But that wasn't even the worst of the news. The final messenger comes to tell him that all of this man's grown children were enjoying a meal together in the oldest son's house when great winds came and shook the foundation of that house. And it fell in and collapsed on its four corners, killing all the children inside. This man has lost all that he owned. This man has lost his children who are dear to him. We cannot fathom the quickness and the severity of that loss. And though so much has been taken away from Job, seemingly without cause, he doesn't know why this is all happening to him. He can't fathom how it could happen so quickly like this. Nevertheless, he gathers himself. And he declares the truth that he has come to know. He says it at the end of Job chapter 1, verse 21. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 
And in all this, Job did not sin or charge, charge God with wrong. Job, unlike this man that we're reading about in Ecclesiastes, at his core, at his center, has his trust and his faith, not in all the blessings that God has given to him. His trust and his faith is the one who gives. He knows that though all might be taken away from him, the one who gives is still his king, is still his redeemer. And so even though he's experienced a devastating loss that we can't even comprehend or relate to, he does not hate God, he does not shake his fist to the heavens, but instead he is willing to say, regardless of my suffering, God is still God, God is still good, and God is still worthy of my praise. Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked I shall return. Nakedness is what is left when everything superficial is stripped away and something is stripped down to its essential being. All their coverings are removed and they are exposed for what they truly are. We see that in Job's example. When all the blessings are stripped away, there is still a man who puts his faith and hope where it belongs. He puts it in the Lord God. He has an eternal perspective, one that fortifies his heart, one that steadies him against the incredible force of his loss. He has been stripped of much, but the most important thing in him cannot be taken away. In the story of the man here in Ecclesiastes, however, that enduring, defining faith is not present. He is stripped bare as well, but what is left over is not something to be proud of. Our wealth often functions as a covering for the brokenness and desperation of the heart that lies beneath. Did you know that? We live in a world where people would, will so often try to cover up their lostness, cover up their, their, their wickedness, cover up their selfishness by surrounding themselves with wonderful things that other people wish they had. As long as I've got a nice house, as long as my job gives me a a position of authority, as long as I have great clothes and I'm well-dressed and taken care of, everyone's going to look at me and they're going to think, there's a guy who's got his life together. There is a man who's got his act together. Our wealth becomes nothing more than a facade, a shiny veneer hiding something broken and sinful inside. When Adam and Eve committed the first acts of sin against the Father, they immediately became aware of what? their nakedness. And how did they react? They went and hid from the Father, who was their greatest blessing. They hid from Him in the garden. They covered that nakedness up. They made temporary clothes for themselves and they hid away from what was true and good. Nice clothes and a fancy car may give the appearance that a person is doing well, but that applied wealth may not match what is essential about that person on the inside. It can only cover the reality of it for so long. The facade of material resources will one day be laid to the side. Whether it is before the end of life or whether it is when this human vessel, this, this physical body which is temporary, is taken away from us and the spirit that alone endures goes to judgment. After experiencing this unfortunate loss, the man in Solomon's example is described as having nothing in his hand. But that doesn't mean that he has nothing. There's nothing in his hand, nothing that he possesses, nothing material that he takes with him. But even in death, when man has been stripped of all his worldly possessions, his spirit remains. His basic personhood remains. And he will carry with himself into judgment a conscience, a conscience that knows whether he has trusted in the Lord God or whether he has failed to trust God, a conscience that might carry the guilt of idolatry, and the shame of loss. That is what we see in this man in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. The man himself is not the only one who is suffering as a result of this financial fallout and this misplaced trust. We learn from Solomon that the man has a son. And we can assume that the man in our story wanted to care for his son. He wanted to provide an inheritance for him to secure his future, to give him a better tomorrow, perhaps even one better than he himself had. And yet because of this unexpected loss, the boy is left with nothing. And really in some ways, as we analyze what it took to get that false security, the boy is left with less than nothing. Rarely do our sins affect us alone. The people that we love, the people that we are nearest to, 
they will often feel the sting of our misjudgments as well. Had this man sought what was enduring and eternal rather than what was vulnerable and temporary, he would have had something substantial to give to his son, something lasting that he could have passed on to his boy. But sadly, this, last, this loss of resources leaves him with nothing to give to this one who carries his name. You entered into this life with empty hands. You will leave with empty hands. Therefore, what you hold in your hands is not what really matters. If you live for the thing that will be stripped away, what you live for will fail you. If you recognize that God has greater intentions for your existence, then you can have a right perspective on wealth. You can keep it from becoming vanity by determining to enjoy it for what it really was meant to be. A temporary gift from a generous God who blesses you in the moment for what you need. And you can count on Him to bless you with what you need tomorrow. As the chapter continues, we receive more details about this man's sad story. The hardworking man traded in priceless joys for the illusion of security. His dogged commitment to work has cost him time with his family that he can never win back. And so we see this in verse 17, where we're told that the man eats in darkness. Now, it might seem like a very small detail. You might even wonder why he includes it here. But culturally, in context, you, you might understand what he's talking about if you think about the times. And we're not talking about a time when there was electricity and people could just work all night long. We're talking about a day when the sun was up and you worked. When it was bright, you worked. And this man who wants to get the most money he can works and works and works until that sun has gone down. And eventually he drags himself home in the dark. And there he eats in darkness by himself, perhaps by the light of a couple of candles. His family has followed the sun they have gone to sleep already, but because this man is so determined to create security out of wealth, he has lost time with them. He doesn't get to fellowship with them. He is left to eat alone. And this darkness is punctuated by several emotions that he has to process in solitude. The man is vexed. That is a word we don't use very often in the English language today. To be vexed means to be confused in such a way that you know you need to get to an answer, but you just can't grasp it. He doesn't know what to do. He knows that something is wrong. There's an uneasiness of mind to this man. He should be feeling happy and safe and secure, but he's not. Something wrong. This wealth that he has is not as secure as he thought it was. We see, we see that he's dealing with a sickness. We don't know if it's of mind or body. We're not told that, but there is something not right with him. We see that he's wrestling also with anger. There's no doubt a consequence of the bitterness that he feels for putting an unrealistic burden on himself to help his family live up to standards that no one has set for him but himself. I see this so very often, especially in men. This is not only a man's problem, but so many men feel that in order to be a good provider for their family, they've got to work constantly to give them material things that will make them happy. When in reality, one of the best things that he could give to his family is himself his presence there to teach his children himself, to care for his wife one-on-one, -on -one, to love them with his time, with his efforts, so that they can see that they're more important to him than the corporate world or this business venture that might put some more dollars in the bank account, but will do so at the expense of closeness with his family. This grievous evil is a triple tragedy. He's traded what matters for what doesn't matter. He has paid a great price to gain what can be so easily lost. The ones that he loves have not, lost the, the, um, have not only lost the wealth that is now gone, but they've lost that husband, that father that should have been there for them, but instead was toiling for years to give them something that slipped right through his fingers. One of the most grievous aspects of this evil is that it is not a rare situation. So many have fallen to this illusion in our own culture today. Their, their time on earth... It's felt to be a burden. It's difficult to enjoy. They're angry about it all the time because they're constantly working for the wrong goals. Goals that will not fill their spirit. Goals that will not satisfy them. And they're believing in false hopes. But the good news that we have to proclaim today in light of this darkness that sickens so many is that there is salvation and true hope in one place and that is in Jesus Christ the Savior.
The beauty of the gospel, the good news that proclaims the truth of Jesus Christ, those, the goodness of that gospel is, is many. First of all, it, it clarifies to us what our real needs are. When the gospel is set before us, it, it speaks the truth and says your true need is not wealth. Your true need is not acceptance in the corporate world. Your true need is not power in a business sense. Your true need is forgiveness. The God who has crafted you in His image, the God who is good and perfect and pure and holy, is a God that each one of us has rebelled against with our stubbornness, with our pride. We all struggle against this God, pretending to be gods of our own lives, pretending to do what only He can do. And this is, this is the source, this is the genesis of our dissatisfaction. We are trying to be what we cannot be. And so it is not until the gospel comes and reveals to us that our sin is real and that our sin is serious because it separates us from a pure and a holy God that we can realize that the battles we've been fighting to try to satisfy ourselves are all an illusion. The true battle is the battle for the heart and it's a battle that we cannot live or we cannot win apart from God's intervention. The gospel reveals to us that because we were so unable to save ourselves, God knew this, that he stepped into our existence, that he came and took on flesh to live amongst us, amongst sinful people, so that he could not only show us an example of wonderful virtue, of beautiful righteousness, but that that man of righteousness could become the man of sorrows, that he would willingly take upon himself the guilt of all of God's chosen people, that he would take it up to the cross and with courage and faithfulness let it be put to death in his own body, that he would suffer on behalf of the chosen for the sins of the world, that he would conquer them and in rising on the third day show us that life can still be a reality for those who have broken God's law if we put our faith and hope in what we need to put our faith and hope in, not in the things of the world, not in our efforts, not in our own empty righteousness, but in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. This gospel puts the burden of sacrifice not on our shoulders, but it takes it off of our shoulders and puts it on the shoulders of the one who cannot fail. It puts that burden on the shoulders of the one who cannot be killed forever. And so though he died in flesh, he could not be extinguished. And he rose alive and victorious, the first of many. Though Christ suffered and died, in our place, his purity is perfect and his resources are endless. Death could not hold him, so he is not defeated. He is not consumed. But the empty promise of self-sufficiency is such a powerful bait that many look right past this wonderful gospel and they see themselves as the only possible solution to their weakness, to their sin tragic number of people have structured their life to seek shelter under what seems like safety, but is in reality something destined to fall. As I was preparing this week to preach, my wife uh, was talking to me about a story that she's reading about a young lady who did mission work in Haiti. And she was there uh, after the great earthquake of 2010. If you're familiar with the history of that nation, which many of you are, it's a huge earthquake that devastated the island to a degree that we can't even imagine. Because the infrastructure there is so poor, because there are no regulations for building, so much of what they had erected, when, that, when the ground began to shake, just crumbled like, like a sandcastle. In fact, the, the primary way that people make houses there in Haiti is they have as cheap as cement that they can possibly find, and then they water it down because they can't afford much of it in order to make cinder blocks. So they're inferior structurally to begin with. And then they can't usually afford rebar to fortify the cinder blocks. So they simply stack them on top of each other to make the walls of their house. And sometimes they'll fill them with some concrete if they can afford it. But more often than not, they throw rocks and dirt as the fortification inside of these cinder blocks. And so it's no wonder that when that big earthquake came in 2010, that those houses almost immediately, these houses which on the outside, they look like strong fortified buildings. They looked like a place of safety, a place of shelter. They quickly turned into tombs because those cinder block walls crushed the people that were inside of the houses. So this young woman wrote about how she was trying to find a place to stay and she was baffled because no one was staying in the houses. Every house was empty. 
Everyone after, in the wake of this great earthquake was living out underneath the stars with no real security because they, the, the, the lack of structural integrity had proven itself to be untrustworthy. So they refused to go into those houses anymore. Friends, this is illustrative of what's going on in the world around us where people have put faith and trust into something that looks strong on the outside. Wealth and savings and insurance and things that seem to us to be some great, some great safeguard. But in reality, they are empty and cannot secure us. But in America, the pride is so great that it seems that rather than find a true shelter, we just keep stacking the blocks higher thinking that we just make the building grander and it'll be more secure, more safe. As grave as this situation is, there is hope. It does not have to be like this man's life that we read about in the first part of our passage. Solomon follows the grave story with encouragement of relief. We see that in verse 18. Let me read it to you again. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and to drink and to find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given to him for this is his lot everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil this is the gift of God for he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart The resolution that Solomon presents to us is this. Enjoy whatever God has chosen to give to you. But friends, do not put your trust in it. Do not put your hope in these gifts that so quickly can be removed. Notice that he uses the word find here. That we are to eat and drink, which is good. We need to understand that there's... There are some fundamental things about being a human being that we don't have to be ashamed of. We are made to eat. We are made to drink. You can take a nap and not feel guilty about it. You don't have to be constantly pressing and pushing. Human beings need rest, right? So Psalmist is letting us know here, don't be like this man who constantly pressed and put all of his efforts into these things that fade. It's okay to stop. It's okay to enjoy what God has given to you. It's okay to to have fun with what's right in front of you sometimes. It's all right to rest from time to time. These are good things. But then he says, you've got to find enjoyment in the toil that you've been given. Man thinks that the way to be satisfied and happy is to, to identify the best and then to work until we get the best. And the scripture here says, no, listen, the best is God and he's come after you. You're not the one coming after him. He's seeking out you. So let him meet you where you are where he has put you, and wherever that happens to be, find ways to be happy with what God has given to you. Find ways to enjoy your station in life. You don't have to be rich to be happy. You don't have to be prosperous. You don't have to be healthy. You don't have to be young. You don't have to be able. God has to be God. And if he is, you can find satisfaction as a child of God. The Christian life is not a dreary and unsatisfying trial. On the contrary, it is only in Christ that we can hope to truly enjoy the fleeting moments of life for what they are, a small portion of the greater journey that God has set us on. Each part of that portion is important and significant, but we cannot lose the overall story for the tiny bit that is right in front of us right now. Remember we talked about a few weeks back about how the Corinthian letters in many ways are strangely parallel to the things that we're learning in Ecclesiastes. And that makes sense. The people in Corinth, were, there was a lot of philosophy there, a lot of Roman thought. And so Paul engages them on a real intellectual level. He makes them think about things and he challenges their beliefs and, and, and hopes that the truth will help them to believe differently. And Ecclesiastes is in many ways doing the same thing, isn't it? It's teaching us to think differently about the world that we live in, to think more deeply about spiritual things. They consider the truth of God over the illusions of man-made wisdom. So in 1 Corinthians 3, look at verses 21 through 23. This will be on the screen for you. Paul says, So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Think about that for a second. For all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world 
or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours. And you are Christ's. And Christ is God's. These Corinthians needed to realize that they had all that they needed in Christ. They were fighting with each other about who was the best teacher. Some people were following after Cephas and some were following after Apollos and others favored the way that Paul wrote. Some thought, oh, I'm just Jesus only, just Jesus. And he's saying, listen, all of this has been given for you, for your benefit and your blessing. Any true thing, regardless of the person it's coming through, if it's from the Lord God, it is for you and you have all you need in Him. This is good and fitting. Contrast that to the grievous evil of trying to secure for yourself that which the world tells you you need. Here is something good and fitting, realizing that everything that you need, God is providing for you day by day. The things that we eat and drink, our daily provision, a gift from God. The health that we have or the healing that we need, it's God's to give or God's to keep away. Either way, he is taking care of you just how he knows he needs to take care of you. The toil that we have to work through, if your job is not your favorite job, if there are bad aspects of what you do and the time that you spend and work to earn money to support your family is, is not like, like a vacation. It's not like something that you enjoy every day. Then ask the Lord, how can I enjoy this? How can I learn to find gratitude in what you have given the Lord can open your eyes to what you have previously not been able to see. Perhaps there's a person there at work that is brokenhearted and has no other outlet to the gospel. And maybe you've been brought to this terrible job because the Lord loves that person. And through you, He wants to love them. He wants to share grace with them. He wants you to pray for them. He wants you to be a support to them. He, that person doesn't have Christ as their security. And so right now, they're truly devastated. He wants to show them that in Christ, you can have this job, which is not the best and still have joy, and still have fulfillment, and still know that everything that you need is being met, even though others might have more, even though others might have more free time, even though it might be easier in other jobs, your presence there might be ordained by God so that he could work a wonderful message of truth and love through you to that individual. And do all these things so long as God allows you to live here in this physical world. This life is so temporary. It is so disposable. Your time here on earth is going to be but a blink of an eye compared to the eternity that you have in heaven with God if you belong to Christ. So it doesn't make sense for us to grumble and complain and to worry too much about the transition period that this earth is. Rather, let us learn to find ways to rejoice in whatever God has so ordained to give to us. Recognize the sovereignty of this God that we worship today. The lot that you have is the lot that the Lord has allowed you to have. Last week we spoke about covetousness, how it assures your dissatisfaction. Because so long as you allow your heart to covet, there will always be something bigger, always something newer, always something that isn't yours. You are condemning yourself to perpetual dissatisfaction. This week's passage addresses a variation on that mistake. Being afraid that you're going to, learn, you're going to lose what you've attained. Getting much and then not being able to enjoy it because you're always worried about whether it's going to be taken away from you or whether it's going to falter. God has put you where you are and He has the right to change where you are. If He chooses to take your wealth away, be ready for it. And learn as Job has learned to praise His great name and to ready yourself for whatever He has for this next chapter of life, this next season that He is sovereign over. Again, to the Corinthian letters, 1 Corinthians 7, 19 through 24. The Apostle Paul says, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when you were called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. Is that surprising to you? That God doesn't say, you're a bondservant? That's socially wrong. Do everything you can to get out of your servanthood because no one should be a servant to another. He doesn't say that. He says, you're, you're a servant. You know what? That's not the best stage of life. But serve the Lord God in your servanthood. If the opportunity presents itself, if freedom becomes an option for you, by all means, take it. And he's going to go on to say here, don't get yourself into slavery if you can help it because that's not the best way to live. Be wise. 
But if that's where you're at and God has you there right now, then trust him. Verse 22, for he who is called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man in the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant to Christ. You were bought at a price. Do not become bondservants of men. And so, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Let that settle into your heart. You might be really unhappy with where you're at right now, but you are not alone where you're at. The presence of God dwells with you if you trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. And He will be the strength that you need to walk through that season of life. If you can advance, then advance to His glory. If you cannot advance, then stay exactly where you are for His glory and serve Him there. If He humbles you, if you're in a grand station in life and everything seems so well, but then the Lord removes that which He had blessed you with, then know there is something you need to learn in a different station. He is taking you to your next assignment. Receive it with a joyful heart. Understand that He can use it for His glory and for your good. As we work, as we toil, let us determine as Christians to work hard at whatever we're doing, to not do anything half-heartedly, knowing that whether we gain much or little by it, that we have what we have, not from our work, but from the God who has assigned us to it. This can bring such peace and contentment to our hearts if our trust lies truly in Him and not in these fickle stages of life that we find ourselves in. So Christian, as the Word speaks to you, ask yourself today, am I happy? Am I happy with what God has given me right now? If your answer is, I might be, I will be when things change, I could be if God does this, then what you're saying is no. I am not happy with what God has given to me. And we've all been there. We've all been dissatisfied at times with the stage of life that God has placed us in. We've all looked across the aisle and seen somebody in a stage that we wish we could be in. But what Solomon is trying to help us to see today is that if we will not love God for what He is instead of what He might do for us, then we won't really love God. Do you love God for who He is? Or are you just loving God because you think there's a blessing behind the man? When your greatest love is God Himself, then the vanity of life is no longer frustrating because you know that what this life is supposed to be is a temporary dwelling place, a, show, a sojourn, a, a place that you're traveling through. It is not your heaven. It is not your reward. It is not your hope. It is where you happen to be as you love the Lord right now. And He's taking you where He wants you to end up. The vexation that the man in our example today was struggling with cannot be solved in any other way than trusting in the Lord God and learning to appreciate and enjoy what He chooses to give you on any given day. So what is our response to this passage? How do, we, how do we feel the impact of what Solomon is saying today? Christian, is your security misplaced? Have you put it in things that don't deserve your trust and your confidence? If that is the case, how can you remove your faith from the things of this material world? How can you begin again to focus in on and trust in this God who is greater than anything you could ever acquire and accumulate on your own power? Have you, as an American citizen, spent far more than you should? Have you made yourself a bondservant of men by gathering so much debt over your head that now you feel compelled to go back to the grindstone and work extra hours and to be picking up shifts and doing everything that you can to try to accumulate more wealth? If that is the case, what do you need to cut free? How can you get out from underneath this burden? God did not put you here on earth to be a slave to man put you here on earth to be his servant, ready and willing to work when he calls. <clears throat> if in foolishness we have created for ourselves a deficit that we cannot get out, it's time to step back and ask the Lord God to give us the wisdom to free ourselves from some of this. Is your time and your energy <clears throat> so wrapped up on work that you can only give a small portion of yourself to the ones that you love the most, to your, your spouse, to your kids, to your community? You might say, what are you saying, Pastor? Do I need to quit my job? Maybe. Isn't everything that 
makes a Christian a Christian on the table before the Lord God? When He is your Lord, do you not say to Him, God, take me where you want me to go. If you want me to move someplace, I would never go on my own, then move me there. If you want to put me in a job situation that's totally different than what I expected, then take me there. Everything should be on the table to the Lord God if He is first in our lives. Do you have to get rid of those resources that are burdening you down? If it's keeping you from faith and peace in the Lord Jesus Christ, then by all means, you're not going to take them into heaven with you anyway. Do not let them be your Lord and Master here on earth. Do you need to better understand what you trust? Do you need to step back and take stock of your finances, of your time and the way that you spend it? Have you become possessed by your possessions? So many think that they have much that will do them good when in reality they are under the burden of the things that they own. If that is the case, then cast them away. But only if you would pursue Christ in their place. The heart of man is always seeking something until it finds Christ. I would hate for you to get rid of these things of the world that have been a false security for you and then to just run to the next thing in the world and grab that and make that your idol. If you're going to cast these things away, if you're going to radically follow after Christ, by all means, do it. But turn away from those things and run only to Jesus. Run only to the security that He can give you or else you'll just simply replace the false security that you had before. There is no worldly treasure that you can put your faith and hope and trust in the way that you can trust Christ. I want to look again at verse 20 as we conclude. It says, For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. How many of you think about heaven very much? I have to put my hand down. I don't think about heaven as much as I should. I know that's one of my deficits. I'm a kind of here and now guy. I think about what's right in front of me. And I have, I have several friends that think a lot about heaven, and I've seen the blessing it is to consider eternity more than I do personally. So it's something I have to work on. But when you think about heaven, do you ever wonder what it's going to be like? What you're going to remember from this life? Is God saying through Solomon here that once we get to heaven, we're not going to remember anything about this, this life? We're just going to forget it all? You might have asked yourself questions like, when I get to heaven, am I going to still be thinking about the things that are happening on earth while I'm gone? Am I going to be able to to let my tears be wiped away if people that I love, I know, don't know the Lord yet or have died without Jesus Christ as Savior? Will I be able to, to overcome that? How can I have joy and peace in heaven if the people I love the most won't share heaven with me? So I want us to go again to Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4, as we consider what it means when Solomon says that God will keep us occupied with joy in our hearts. It says in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18, so we, and this is what Ross called us to worship with today as he read scripture, if you were here earlier. It says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. <clears throat> for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are unseen, or rather the things that are seen, are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This is Ecclesiastes in a nutshell. This is the whole book that we've been studying as God through Solomon teaches us to care about what we should really care about to understand the nature of this world that we live in, not as our eternal dwelling place, not as our permanent home, but as the place that we pass through to get where we're going. And while we're passing through, let's make an impact. Let's make a difference here, but let's keep it in perspective, church, that this world is a transition period. We're in triage right now. We're not where we're going to end up. We are going to where we belong. So let us not get wrapped up in the details of where we just so happen to be right now because we are on pilgrimage, friends. We are on a journey to the truth. We are on a journey to the heaven that God has prepared for His people. There is an eternal weight of glory that nothing in this earth can compare to. How can we ever hope to get satisfaction if we turn away from that weight of glory and think about the trivial things that are occupying our time here on earth? Let us be heavenly-minded, friends. When we get to heaven, we're not going to totally hit the reset button on our memory. You're going to remember this life. You know why? Because God did a lot. He paid a great price 
so that your story, the story of your life here on earth, would glorify him forever. Did you know that? Your testimony of being a rebel against him and then by grace and love being redeemed will forever proclaim God's goodness. So no, you're not going to forget everything about your life. He doesn't just wipe the slate clean and hit the reset button entirely and make you a totally new creature. You are new, but you are who you are. But you're not going to miss the things of earth. You're not going to look back and wish that you had been given a different task here on earth, that you had been given a different job, that you had had a different economic status here on earth. None of that's going to matter to you at all. We have something so wonderful to look forward to. Let us see the example of this man who had nothing to look forward to. Let us determine in our hearts not to fall into the same pit that he fell into. Let us, let us understand the true joy and the true fulfillment that comes when the Lord God is the only thing that we put our trust in. We must not look to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Christian, where does your trust lie? I pray that it lies in Jesus Christ. Would you bow with me as we close in prayer? God, we thank you for your grace. And we do ask, Lord, that as we've spent this time together today worshiping you and exalting your name, that we would not go away from here and let our attention be drawn to things that are fickle again. I pray, Lord God, that this would not be our weekly glimpse into eternity, only to return to that which is failing and falling apart, Lord. We are here in a broken world, and so we have to acknowledge our needs, but let us also remember that you're meeting each one of them day by day. Father, we are here, so let us not just breeze through, but let us make an impact on the people that we come into contact with while you've got us on this journey. But Father, don't let us become deceived. God, let, let us not be in, in peril as we build a a fake structure, a facade of comfort and security that will only topple in on us when life gets difficult. Instead, God, help us to see and to know that you alone are the one that we can trust. There is no one like you. Father, we confess today our weakness. We know that as material creatures, it is easy for us to, to deal with that which is material. It is easier for us to conceptualize what we can see and taste and touch and hear and smell. But Father, there is something so much greater. So I ask that you apply our hearts to it, Lord God. If there's anyone here today who is in a place where their trust has been in the things only of this world and they've wondered why for so long they've experienced the dissatisfaction, the vexation that they cannot solve, I pray that your gospel would resound in their hearts in such a mighty way that you might redeem them today. That your regenerative power bring them life as they trade the fading things of this world for the permanent things of eternity. God, help us, to, help us to have a heart for the lost. We love you and we thank you and ask that you would use us in such a way that you're magnified. We pray all this through Jesus Christ, our high priest. Amen.